Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. This is Brian, and uh, today's episode is a little bit longer than others. It pertains to a reassessment of the Mount Polly tailings failure and the lessons learned from that. So I hope you can hang in there and listen to the entire episode with me. Hey everyone, this is Brian. This is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and today I am joined by Elena Zabolotny. Elena, how are you today? Good. Good. Nervous? Good. Good. And and where are you physically right at the moment? I am the in the Ottawa Gatineau area. That's oh, okay. Yeah, and we're recording this during the pandemic, and it kind of feels like we're in the final phase of the pandemic. I know we've got other variants popping up here and there, but it it just seems like it's going to get better soon anyway. Does it seem like that to you? Yes, we're all hoping. I mean, the most regretful part actually is seeing the students attend online. Yeah. I think that they really suffered. Their preparation really suffered, I think. So, yeah, I'm forward I'm... To, to, to seeing the students in person and teaching them in person. Yeah, I've been taking uh, graduate level courses remotely, and it's it's good, but it's not the best for sure. It's not even the quality of teaching; it's it's the the level of inspiration and the level of uh, you know energy that you feel. Yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah. I I gave a talk. I guess it's been a couple of years now. A keynote lecture to an outfit in. Peru and because I didn't have any feedback there was no camera showing me the audience you know I couldn't hear if people laughed at my jokes or anything it was it was just a very different experience yes yeah here, here. so Elena tell us a little bit about yourself tell us about your background and your education well I uh, I'm a geotechnical engineer I did my uh undergrad in uh, Saskatchewan, then I did my graduate study is in uh, Alberta, at the University of Alberta. I, uh, in between those two, <laughs> worked as a consulting engineer with Clifton Associates, that is a uh, geotechnical company in uh, Saskatchewan. I don't know if you heard, but when Clifton Rocks, okay. and Alan Widger and Alan Kelly and everybody else. And, uh, yeah. And uh, okay. after I finished my doctorate, I uh, worked a little bit in Alberta, and then I moved to Ottawa to work at Carleton. Okay, and and you're on the teaching staff uh, at Carleton. It's a uh, it's an academic it's a regular academic position. It's an assistant professor position. Yeah, yeah. And what courses are you teaching? So right now I'm teaching an undergraduate course in environmental geotechnics and a graduate course in geotechnical base studies. I picked yeah. up for myself. They gave me a choice, so I picked up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, your your educational background would have been setting you up pretty good to teach that course. 
that's what I thought. And I think I came up with a pretty good course. Yeah. I, I, I didn't just leave it at the plain description. I, we were talking about contextual. We're talking about how geotechnical research is shaped by case studies. Mm. Do, do, you find your, do you find yourself presenting PowerPoints or uh, doing a lot of writing on a white board or, or how, how have you found it easier, easier to teach? I use PowerPoints, but uh, you have to engage uh, the students. So you have to prod them to talk, especially when it's online. You have to, you have to engage. Uh, you have to have them talk. A lot of the time students are afraid to give the wrong answer. And a lot yeah. of the conversation at grad level is, it, it, there is no right answer. There has to be a conversation. There has to be a vigorous discussion. You, you know, when I was and getting thinking my... process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was getting my master's at the U of A, um, Professor Morgenstern was kind of an intimidating character to be a professor. And he would randomly throw out questions. And if you got the wrong answer, sometimes he would boo you and sometimes uh, uh, different different responses. But we got together as a group and said, okay, whoever just has any answer, just throw it out there. And if you get booed, we'll buy you a beer. So we, we called it a beer for a boo. <laughs> and so people just started throwing out answers. <laughs> And it went a lot better when, when there was actually people answering and he didn't just point his finger and say, you, what is the answer? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what uh, what was your PhD topic at the U of A? Uh, my topic uh, dealt with the mechanism of failure at Mount Poly, at the Mount Poly TSF. So... The Mount Polly uh, was subject of a pretty intensive study. Uh, the expert panel came out with quite a comprehensive report in a pretty short amount of time. So what was left to do? And, and maybe you could just give us a little bit of background on Mount Polly just to refresh our memories. Right. Well, the questions that I've been uh trying to deal with in my thesis. They're actually stated out in the open, right in the report. In fact, there were two investigations, not one. Uh, there was one that was done by the investigation panel, the independent panel of experts. That would be Dr. Morgenstern, Dr. Pick, Dr. Wendell. And then there was another one by KPCB. And these investigations, they were government commission. And when these investigations are commissioned, they, they, they seek to answer a very specific set of questions. Questions that are probably of interest to the public and to the governing bodies. And uh, they don't necessarily deal with research type questions. Yeah. would be more of interest to us. So the two things that I was uh, dealing with in my thesis had to do with the specifics of the, of the progressive mechanism of this failure. So how it unfolded. And the second question that I was wrangling with, it dealt with the three-dimensionality of this problem. So the question that I was trying to answer is how could that slope fail given the three-dimensionality of that uh, uh, failure? Yeah. And, uh, 
as I said, those questions are stated outright in, in the original reports. Um, those reports, they were addressing questions like, what was the cause of failure? Were there you know, practices that um, had to do with design or maintenance or construction that may have contributed to this failure? Uh, was there something that we could have done in retrospect that would have averted the failure? Can there be something that we could do now to avert these type of failures elsewhere? And so on, these are the type of questions. Uh, the, the two investigators, they answer the question uh, regarding the mechanism of failure. They both yeah. pretty much agree in general. Uh, they both agree that the failure initiated as an undrained failure in a clay unit in the foundation. Uh, and they both agree that there was a progressive mechanism that was involved either in the initiation of that failure or in its rapid unfolding. But to say that you think that there is a progressive failure mechanism, uh, that's a qualitative statement. Mm. Quantitative statement would be to calculate it and demonstrate it, right? And that's yeah. what I was dealing with. This is a, not a trivial question, and that's why it's usually left to research. Oh, okay, okay. So, what what were the major findings that you came up with? Well, uh, so... We generally know how, well, we think in theory how a progressive failure unfolds. But what I found is that the way it unfolded didn't necessarily follow the uh, pattern, that that mental image of what, what we think a progressive failure looks like. So generally speaking, the, the classic model of progressive failure that is associated with strain-making materials, which that foundation uh, layer was, uh, we think about it in the following terms. It's so we imagine that you have a slope of those training materials, and somewhere in that slope, you have this critical condition where the material is at yield and it begins weakening, it begins losing sheer strength. And now that material cannot sustain the load that it was sustaining before. That means that materials around it have to pick up that slack. Yeah. And this is this is somewhere deep within the deposit, not at the toe of the facility. No, it has to be around it usually. So yeah. the, the um, have you seen ripstop fabrics? They do that now for alpine. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like that. So okay. if you have a little bit of a rip in in the wick area, then the stronger fabrics uh, fibers around it will stop. Right, they pick up the slump. Mm, okay. But okay. but if you have strain weakening material around it and the whatever they've picked up caused, caused them now to weaken as well, then the wider area has to pick up that slack. And so uh, yeah, yeah. the progressive failure, so that's what that's why it's progressive, it'll grow and grow and grow. If it does not develop into a global failure, then we we'll call it contained. Mm. But if it keeps going, if there is nothing to pick up, the, you know, the, uh, the slack, in, in that, it, 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 if there is nothing to compensate for the growing loss of shear resistance in that strain weakening zone, then uh, the progressive failure will continue until you have a complete collapse. And so that is what we usually think of when we talk about progressive failure. And that's what we had in mind 
when we were thinking about Mount Polly. Now, when I mentioned about the three-dimensionality of this problem, what I meant to say is that the original investigators looked at the problem in two dimensions, mostly. Yeah. Uh, and their model was based on their two-dimensional back analysis. Uh, they did run a very uh, simplified model in three dimensions, and they did a limit equilibrium analysis on an extruded section, and they found that the safety factor in three dimensions was about 30% higher than the safety factor in two dimensions. And that's pretty normal. We expect that because a three-dimensional safety factor accounts for the shear resistance in the side walls of a slide. So we have a three-dimensional shape like a bowl. At the sides, we have a lot of resistance that the two-dimensional case doesn't account for. So the two-dimensional case is generally thought of as being a little bit in error, errors on the, on the lower side of the safety factor, right? And so, of course, in the case of the Mount Holly um, embankment, that three-dimensional surface was passing largely through the rock fill in the shell zone. And the rock fill was by far the strongest material there. So it's, you know, we're looking at a coarse material with uh, uh, friction angles of, you know, upward of 40 plus degrees. Yeah. And yeah. so there was a lot of shear resistance in that zone that should have stabilized that slope. So uh, the safety factor in two dimensions was one, the safety factor in three dimensions was 1.3, which in, in very rudimentary terms would mean that we have about 30% more strength than we have driving stresses. Yeah. Right? We have more strength than we need. So that slope should have stayed put, mm. even with, with all that. And so even in, in the original report by the panel, you can see there is a section on the three-dimensionality of the problem. And they say, well, Maybe the strain weakening in the upper in the in the clay unit was actually quite extensive. Maybe it wasn't just you know an unrated failure. Maybe that unit weakened extensively before collapse uh, took place, and they uh, try they assigned a um, remolded value to that uh, clay unit and checked the safety factor, and it got closer to unity. And so they said, well, maybe that was what happened. So uh, essentially their hypothesis was that in order for the failure to happen, the, the base unit had to weaken extensively. And that's what we were going by. Now, the second portion that we were uh, kind of wrangling with had to do with deformation. So remember that Mount Poly failed in a very brittle uh, fashion with no precursors. So there was no excessive deformation, there was no crack, there was no warning. In fact, I think yeah. Dr. Augustin was telling me at some point that they had a truck drive there 20 minutes before the failure and they noticed nothing. Hmm. So, and they know when the failure initiated from, from the pisometer response. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, we know the failure was very brittle, so we know that there wasn't a, a heck of a lot of displacement uh, before the collapse. And so if you assume any kind of um, remolding in, uh, in the clay unit, you have to assume that it was uh, limited to a, to a very thin shear band. Otherwise, the displacement would have been too large, right? The second problem is that even if you look at the remolded value in there, there was a very large portion of the, upper, uh, of the uh, clay unit in front of in front of the embankment that would have followed a different 
uh, mechanical response. So okay. if, if, if the unit under the embankment would have been normally consolidated, it would have been contractive and shearing, it would have been susceptible to uh, undrained failure, what we call undrained failure. So it's it it, it 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 tries to contract, it has a tendency for contraction on shearing, there is a uh, excess for water pressure that develops in the, in that zone and uh, an associated reduction in effective stress and ensure strength, right? But yeah. in front of the dam, we don't have that. We have lightly over-consolidated and over-consolidated clays. They're still over-consolidated. They haven't been loaded by the embankment. They respond differently. And so we didn't quite... So again, the, the accounting doesn't work. We, we don't know how uh, th th that portion in front of the uh, embankment could have weakened to that extent. Mm -hmm which in turn means that something else had to be weaker at failure than we originally thought had to be. Otherwise, yeah. the map doesn't work. Uh, one of the things that was very obvious from the aerial photographs, from the evidence in the field, is that the rock field responded in a very different fashion from everything else. So we had all this evidence of very, very brutal failure in the core, in foundation, uh, and yet the rock field deformed, the rock field in some places flowed, had this national lawn scarps. It, it actually uh, flowed over and above the toe of the slide. Uh, so it shifted by an extra 20 to 25 meters by any account, in addition to the shift of the of this overall soil mass. Mm. Right. So, mm. and we also knew uh, from records that uh, they've had issues with compaction. They uh, they've, they've been placing that uh, material in lifts that were maybe too thick. Uh, they haven't been compacting in the later stages and so on. So there were issues with that. And so we do have a body of knowledge on 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 this class of materials, and we know that they have different different deformation stress responses than other materials. So they have lower deformation stress responses. So our thinking was that we are dealing with a uh, stress training compatibility issue there. And so uh, the working hypothesis was that the rock field did not deform sufficiently to fully engage its sheer strength before it was essentially too late. Oh, interesting. And so uh, the, the interesting part is though, what I ended up finding is that, so remember this hypothesis, we had to have a lot of weakening in the upper GLU. In, yeah. Sorry, the clay unit is the upper GLU. I keep yeah. going to that name yeah. because I'm so used to it. My apologies. So uh, there had to be a lot of weakening in it. The deformation model, three dimensions doesn't actually show that. The deformation model, in fact, uh, supports uh, KCVs and the panel's findings that the uh, strengths at failure in the upper jelly had to be at peak and drain or just below peak and drain. So we don't need a lot of strain weakening in the upper GLU in order to see collapse in the whole structure. The, the mechanism is actually a lot more complicated. There are three things going on at the same time. So remember uh, from the reports, they were describing the slide as rotational translational. And I would really prefer to call it translational and rotational because the translation came first and the rotation was essentially because the crest uh, was dropping yeah. because of the shift. And yeah. there was an uplift at the toe because 
the, the incoming material had to be somehow accommodated. So the key point is that there was a translation in the foundation because there was this slippage on this banana peel, right? On this right, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember right at the beginning of my research, I was talking to Joe Quinn from KSV, and I was telling him about this, and he said, well, huh, how would the till about that clay layer, how would that accommodate this displacement? And that's something that I kept thinking about, I think, for years. And I was really interested in that area there. And uh, the interesting part is that as we see a progressive failure developing in that clay unit, there are uh, displacements in the downstream direction that begin accumulating, right? And it's yeah. right under the core or a little bit ahead of the core. And so uh, the till above it, that that till which was, you know, a silty, sandy clay unit, not 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 a rubber band, that till has to displace above it, right? And there is some till that is left behind. So there is some kind of extension. There has to be a spatial accommodation of this process. You can think about it as a grab information or the start of the grave information. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a zone where we are effectively losing confinement. And uh, when I was looking at the stress states, the stress response in that uh, region, uh, we can very clearly see that the stress states go up to some extent due to the loading, and then they begin dropping. And they begin dropping simply because the confinement is being lost, sigma three is being dropped, uh, yep. dragged down, and yep. that drags the whole stress state down. What would that do to the shear resistance in those elements? They can no longer sustain that same load they no longer have the same uh, shear resistance, right? And yeah, so, yeah. and and the interesting part is that as the displacements in the foundation accumulate, that that translational zone is beginning to develop. This uh, shear zone on the upstream propagates into the teal, and that facilitates further displacements in the clay unit which in turn, again, uh, help propagating that uh, upstream zone further. So it's a, a chicken and egg situation. Yeah. One, one helps the other. The, uh, and, and then you can very clearly see the zone propagating into the core as well. This was one of the mysteries to me when I was looking at the problem initially. We have so much evidence of the sheer surface on the upstream propagating through the core. Why through the core? There was much weaker material right behind the core, mm. and, you know. So the yeah. core was a very strong material. Why? Why do we have all of these uh, very, you know? And so my thinking at the time was that the evidence that uh, the shear surfaces and core that we're having, they are just to the side of the slide. That's where the three-dimensional surface entered to the core and then propagated further uh, downstream. But the deformation model that I run actually shows a very clear propagation through the core, and it's effectively uh, related to the displacements in the foundation. So the, the slippage is happening, and wherever it's happening, that's where the crack is essentially propagating up and up. Oh, interesting, yeah. And so yeah. there is a reduction of shear resistance in the upstream uh, zone, in the core, and then in, in the till, and then in the core. Mm -hmm. So instead of losing shear strength in the foundation, we're actually losing 
sheer resistance on the upstream. And then the third effect is, it's very interesting to, to see the rock fill as, as well. We're seeing it not really engaged. So the stress states in the rock fill, they remain below the strength envelope um, the whole time. So yeah. three things are contributing. So the, the, the strength that we think is there by looking at three-dimensional limit equilibrium methods, uh, it's actually not engaged. It's it's nominal. Yeah. It gets counted. In theory, we could we could somehow engage it if it was it was deformed just right. But it you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that that's a lot of uh, findings in one uh, research topic. Um, let me. Uh, what what program did you use to assess the stability? Uh, I used Flag 3D. Yeah. Okay. Itaskus uh, software, yes. Yeah, yeah. So if, uh, let's just talk about the rock fill for a minute. So the rock fill or the, or the rocky portion didn't, wasn't able to mobilize its peak effective stress friction angle. So if in the experts reports or KCB, if they had used a smaller friction angle or reduced friction angle for that rock portion, would they they would have come up with a different answer that might I'm have? So, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a good question that actually highlights one of the problems. Uh. The the strength of the rock fill in the two dimensional problems in the two dimensional solutions is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what strength you're assigning to the rock fill because the slip surface doesn't pass through it at all. The two-dimensional uh, slip surface passes through the core. Two, yeah. yeah. Okay. It only comes into play with the three-dimensional model. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, okay. This does tell us. But but, but yeah. they yeah. did conduct three-dimensional limit equilibrium uh, assessments, right? So yeah. in, in the report, there is a section on that that's based on three-dimensional limit equilibrium methods. Uh, my preliminary uh, analysis were also three-dimensional limit equilibrium analysis, just mm. try to gauge the problem, right? Yeah. And so uh, they all give all this great amount of strength that develops in the rock fill. Well, limit equilibrium methods, they assume implicitly that the shear resistance across the entire slip surface is mobilized simultaneously at the same time. Yeah. In fact, at Mount Wally, we have this very strong um, stress-strain uh, incompatibility effect where the rock fill does not engage its full strength until very large deformations, whereas everything else is very brittle and engages right away and then fails. And so we have... Um, at the relatively low strains and low, at relatively low deformation levels, we have a spiraling uh, situation where the uh, clay unit can strain weaken very easily now. There is a reduction in uh, shear resistance in the till and in the core on the upstream, and the rock fill is still not responding very well. In, in the simulation, we can't really replicate the, uh, you know, three, four, five, six, ten meters of deformation that we, we've seen in the end. Clearly, the rock fill eventually engages and fails. We can see that in the field, but not at the deformations that we can mm -hmm. um, achieve in, in flux. Yeah. And so, 
it essentially has no idea that the failure is happening. It's just moving along. Uh, I was talking to Dave Williams at some point, and he he had a very good description of it. I was trying to to kind of argue with him that that was what I, I thought was happening at Mount Holly, and he said, "Well, you, you're you're talking about the, about it as a confinement issue because uh, deformation moduli are." related to confinement stresses and the rock field being right, right at the surface would have low confinement as opposed to when it's buried in the ground at some depth right yeah and uh, and especially that's especially true with compaction he says well i see it as a compaction issue if you have a pile of gravel and you throw it on your table and you'll have a you know a, a, a lump of, of gravel there. The gravel is very strong, but in order for it to shear, it has to first deform a lot. So it has to, the, the grains have to come together. This pile is very loose, right? The grains have to come closer together in order to engage their shear resistance. Mm, so that's what's happening yeah, there. Yeah. So that, uh, that tells you the importance, not necessarily the necessity, but the importance of compaction of that that kind of rock fill we uh, this is not a, uh, a a topic that is you know un, uh, unknown uh, the, the issue with stress stream compatibility was long discussed theoretically in geotechnical engineering it's just that in the types of problems that geotechnical engineers deal with it's rather hard to demonstrate it it's easy to, you know, stress training compatibility is something that structural engineers can prove very easily, but they're modeling yeah. little members with, you know, right. very, very small models. They can do it, but, you know, they can run a model. We're, we're uh, modeling a mountain, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very difficult to show. Uh, computationally, we haven't been able to do that until very recently. But theoretically, I think Dr. somebody told me that Dr. Morgenstern has been arguing this uh, issue with compaction and stress and compatibility for decades. Mm. I didn't know that, but apparently yeah. that's the case. That's... It's very hard to argue for something theoretically because you can't assign it any quantitative value. You can't say, well, if you start compacting your rock fill, you will improve your likelihood of you know, failure, you will decrease your likelihood of failure by X, I don't know. So yeah. it, it's very difficult to go to an operator and say you have to spend X millions of dollars on uh, a compaction because theoretically it will make the down safer. It's yeah. very helpful to have an actual case study demonstrating that. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and, and I do remember one of the big takeaways from the slope stability class at the U of A is that if you assume that, or if your failure criterion for a, a soil a geomaterial is 20% strain, then you're inherently assuming that 20% strain is going to be allowable in the field. So with, the, with this rock fill not being compacted, it might've had to shear a lot to be able to engage all those particles. Yeah. So, so we're talking about essentially functional failure here. We are talking yeah. about levels of deformation that, in fact, allowed for a drop of the crest that in turn allowed for overtopping because overtopping is what ultimately washed out the whole embankment. Right. So if you have this deformation, you can, in theory, argue that the, 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 the rock fill will eventually engage and stop the mass from sliding. I'm not sure if that's the case. 
because of the issues on the upstream. Really, we're talking about the, the, the initial stages of grave information. That's that's my opinion there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so so we we this is another process that we can't really accommodate in limited equilibrium because in limited equilibrium. Uh, methods we have very specific methods for calculating the the normal effective stresses acting on the shear surface, and there is no knowledge that there could be a reduction of that uh, normal stress because of of some amount of deformation causing a reduction in confinement. But in fact, we do know about this kind of uh, mechanism from retaining walls. We call that active failure, right? Yeah. The retaining wall is moving away, the yeah. soil is sloughing, sigma-3 gets dragged down, the soil fails. If sigma-3 um, falls any further, there's a downward readjustment of the whole stress state. And so the uh, shear strength, the shear resistance on the critical plane also drops, everything drops. Yeah, yeah. So, so Elena, I I know there's some practical applications for your research. So let's say that you and I are designing Mount Poly two, the numeral two, and how? What suggestions would you have as a geotechnical engineer to use our well, that's so easy. Analytical process to, 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 to design this thing. Not not the original designers, but me and you designing something in the same neighborhood, you know, that might have the similar geology. And how- that's very easy. Uh, I remember the upper GLU, the, the clay layer where uh, the filler yeah. the, the initiated. That was a very uh, small unit. It was like a yeah. pancake, only about 200 by 300 meters. Yeah. Move the embankment 20 meters back. That's oh. all you have to do. Just to avoid. <laughs> so okay, you don't yeah. have to get fancy with calculations. Just avoid yeah. that uh, problematic area. So yeah. that's one easy solution. Uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, designing it, well, if you're you're saying if I had to design on a unit and I didn't have a choice yeah. of moving it somewhere yeah. else, yeah. I, I yeah. get a question. Yeah. Um, well, the, the 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 error was of course with the fact that the possibility of failure uh, of that unit under undrained conditions was not originally considered. That, that is the fundamental error. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's a that's an easy takeaway. Well, it's not mine. I think it's the original yeah. report yeah. that stated that. So yeah. essentially, the takeaway there was that uh, you need to understand the geology and the mechanical yeah. properties. You need to understand how the mechanical behavior will be affected by your structure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what a what about if if you could go back in time and install any kind of instrumentation or monitoring at Mount Polly, um, what what would you suggest gets installed? Especially considering it was a brittle failure, yes, it, it gives you almost no warning. Right. So uh, this is what I'll tell you. Um, the original reports discuss the brittleness of this failure, and they say that probably 
instrumentation wouldn't have helped because the failure was very brutal. Uh, when I did my deformation analysis, I, I did a very detailed one in the sense that I loaded, I, I replicated the loading stages, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And so in, in the models, uh, the contained progressive failure of the foundation starts in stage seven. So three years prior to failure. So it okay. started, yeah. so there was a small zone where we see strain weakening in 2011 maybe right yeah but, but strain weakening takes place in a very thin shear band maybe you know a few millimeters thick mm. so whatever strain you're seeing you won't see a whole lot of displacement but then we have stage eight stage nine a and uh, i i kind of played with, with the notion and i inserted this faking clinometers in my model and i yeah. Yeah. looked at the displacements and you can see the shear band developing there if there are a few millimeters of displacement that would have been plenty of forewarning yeah. for, for for designers but again having said that you have to be pretty lucky to insert the inclinometers just at the right location it, yeah. it was, that is a very specific location where you can see that. On the other hand, I could make an argument that that location is special in the sense that that is a location where you have a very unfavorable uh, combination of factors. So you have a very, very, you have some of the highest uh, total stresses because the location is under the core. And the core is saturated, it's very dense. And so it applies a large total stress. Also, the uh, water table hasn't dropped yet. It hasn't, it hasn't entered the rock field where it really drops. And so your effective stresses are lo lower. Yeah. So you have a sort of a very unfavorable ratio of total to effective stresses. Not a good situation. You also have, so this is again, the, the area under the slope. That is where your stress tensor rotates. So your principle, your major principle stress is under some angle. It's no longer vertical because yeah. it's not a horizontal surface, right? It's rotated, and that in turn means that your um, your shear surface also uh, your your critical uh, plane also rotates to a more uh, horizontal uh, position. So to a position that is more aligned with with what we know as the slip surface in fact that's how the slip surface takes shape more or less yeah and so we have all of these unfavorable uh, conditions happening in that zone and I, I would very much argue that this is a, a logical uh, a position for inclinometers whether you know about a weak foundation unit or not that would be a good place to yeah, 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 and, yeah, and I think most geotechnical engineers would default to vibrating wire piezometers, but you would stand even a slimmer chance of seeing this zone with a vibrating wire piezometer. Vibrating wire piezometers are meant to capture the uh, response to loading, yeah. the poor water pressure response to loading. Yeah. They're not. They're not. Uh, Aimed at capturing the response, the poor water pressure response to shearing. That's a to much shearing. harder thing to yeah. capture. Yeah. Right. So when when you load, you have this spike in the pressure because the water is supporting the new load, but that has nothing to do with this uh, poor water pressure spike on shearing. 
right? That's a different effect. The the pore water pressure spike on shearing has to do with the contract contractive nature of the normally yeah. consolidated place, yeah. among other things. It has to do with the fact that the grains are being sheared laterally and they want to collapse in the water. They're no longer supported as well by the solid phase. And so of course they can't collapse the volumetrically they can't collapse on, on drain shearing so then the water has to up the pressure in order to support the load that was previously in part supported by the solid phase so in other words our effective stress drops and so our shear strength also drops yeah yeah it's a different yeah. effect and so you know episodes are very important when when you're loading the ground because we don't want to overload the ground right uh, right we want to see how the poor water pressure is dissipating we want to see that our units are consolidating that they are mm -hmm. gaining additional strength to support the new load and so on yeah yeah so yeah it's uh it's fascinating and also frustrating because we've been doing some things a little bit wrong for a while so hopefully this helps but one of the one of the issues is the the this unit wasn't detected by the site investigation oh it was uh not in this area yes uh so uh, in Moho, if you look at the uh discussions between the Ministry of Energy and Mines in BC and the uh, operators at the time when, when, when the dam was being designed, they detected this unit. And there are actually questions that are raised by the Ministry of Energy and Mines and they're saying, well, what about this unit? Uh, and they said, well, it's over-consolidated and it's part of another unit. So there is a upper, upper glacial yeah. pasturing unit, so there is an upper clay unit and there is a lower clay unit. The lower clay unit is actually a separate clay unit, so the pre-consolidation pressures are higher in that unit. And so there is a complexity to the depositional history in that location. Clearly, the lower unit was deposited in a prior glaciation period, loaded to some degree, with the, consolidated with to a higher yeah. uh, pre-consolidation uh, pressure, then the thinner unit on the top, somewhat above it, I think only a couple of meters above it, is deposited and uh, you know loaded to some lesser degree, and or maybe for a, uh, a shorter amount of time, who knows? And uh, but but you know how we measure the pre-consolidation pressure. There are you know you have a variation in your tests. Oh sure. So it's it's all too easy to look at those samples and say, well, this one is pre-consolidated, that one is pre-consolidated, uh, over sorry, over-consolidated. Yeah, sure. They kind of look like like a portion of the same unit, and 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 the lower uh, pre-consolidation pressure is probably just a variation of the yeah, sample or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And so they assume that this clay unit was a. Um, was a part of that lower unit and uh, that unit with a pre-consolidation pressure of 800 uh, kilopascals would have not become normally consolidated until stage nine whereas that upper unit became normally consolidated in stage five mm. so there is yeah. a difference yeah. Not to yeah. say that the lower uh, that the lower unit wouldn't have become a problem because right in stage nine, I see the lower unit also 
becoming normally consolidated. So, you know, there are interesting things happening. So another thing that has to be said there is that uh, there are few, uh, the, the, the boreholes were few and far between. They yeah. always have to fight for the number of boreholes. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's always very, very hard to, to argue because they cost a lot, especially when you're, you, when you're talking a lot of them. And the depth of them is uh, also always, you know, a point of contention. They cost so much more when they're deeper. And so yeah. they had yeah. boreholes, but they weren't very deep or there weren't very many and so yeah just just to exaggerate that you know if i was putting together a site investigation plan i might say i want to 50 borings and 120 test pits and the owner says why don't you just look at google earth instead and so i I say okay how about 20 borings and 50 test pits and they say how about a site reconnaissance instead and so it, it always seems like this uh negotiation and i think maybe people have to dig in their heels and say look you know that uh, my expression is you pay for a site investigation whether you have one or not yes and so you, you may as well spend it beforehand rather than after the fact yes well i i think there's no geotechnical engineer that will disagree with you on this point <laughs> yeah but we always have to argue uh, you know with with business people yeah and it's very difficult to argue for a non-event my uh, in uh, back in uh, after after i did my undergraduate degree i worked as a civil engineer and i i built roads and and i I actually worked with uh, road safety for a while too and so we were we were dealing with uh, accident prone locations on highways so if you go and you fix it and somebody doesn't die, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody knows that this is a yeah, cost All right, all right. Yeah, good point. Good point. So it's, it's extraordinarily hard to argue for safe designs. Yeah, yeah. So Elena, I th- yeah, I, I think it's really hard to sum this up in a nutshell, but maybe you've got some key takeaways for the listeners or you know any any kind of encouragement you can offer well <laughs> here's what i think modeling doesn't modeling is not the answer modeling is a tool that helps us test various theories yeah uh, my first mentor in geotechnical engineering, my first mentor that was teaching me uh, slope stability, his name is Alan Kelly, he told me that you don't go modeling until you have a very good idea of what may have happened. Mm. And and you're just seeking confirmation if that was even, in fact, possible or not. Um, limit equilibrium analysis is not perfect neither is deformation analysis they all have their own limitations it's important to understand those limitations yeah it's important to understand what the analysis can tell you and what it cannot tell you in principle uh i I remember uh, at some point you asked me well how can you consider um stress training compatibility in the limit equilibrium analysis and i i would say you can't 
you can only accommodate it somehow through adjusting strength yeah. if, if you know about it beforehand. But then if you know about it beforehand, you don't actually need to do that. So I guess you have to be aware of the various conditions at the site and understand how you might be able to analyze and what tools there are to do that. Yeah. But also just be generally aware of, of the dangers of those conditions. If you have, uh, for example, issues with compaction, you shouldn't be thinking about stress training capability. Uh, if, if you have strain-looking immunes, you should be thinking about the possibility of, uh, you know, remolded strengths. Uh, another thing is, so this mechanism that I'm describing on the upstream, this, this stretching of the till and this yeah. shear surf, the more we, we use deformation analysis, the more it keeps popping up. So if you remember the Fundao down failure, yeah, yeah. There was this toothpaste uh, extrusion effect where the lower, uh, more clay tailings kind of extended laterally, and the and, and the uh, sandy deposit above lost confinement. They they had to extend laterally as well, and so they lost confinement. Their the confining stresses dropped, and that caused the liquefaction of that. Yeah. We have an even better example now. So Cadia in 2019. So at the time when I was running my models, Cardia happened and somebody was running their own analysis on Cardia. And there we have a strain weakening unit in the foundation, very much like Mount Polly. Mm -hmm. And it's moving forward and the units above, in that case, the tailings were losing confinement and they liquefied. So this loss of confinement is not a unicorn. It's, it's a common... Yeah thing um we have some uh, remnants in our mentality uh, that that come from the 50s when we used to think about landslides as this spoon shaped shape mm -hmm. that just yeah. shears about yeah. right yeah. Yeah. but if and so we were thinking about strength even if we have some kind of incompatibility the thinking was that eventually everything will shear enough that everything will come to a peak strength yeah yeah. But but in the case where we have for displacement, like in the cases of graben formations, or in the case of uh, Fundau, we have a different effect uh, playing in. So this is another thing that we should be thinking about when we have displacements in the foundation. We should sure. be thinking about the response in in the materials on the upstream. Yeah, that all reminds me of a phrase that Ward Wilson likes to say. He didn't, he didn't coin the phrase, but I really like it. He says, all models are inherently wrong, but some models are helpful. Yes, that's very good. I yeah. never heard him say that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it's really helpful to remember that. You know, it doesn't yes. matter how good your model is, it's, there's something wrong. I mean, uh, the first thing that I did for my PhD is I looked at case studies from the 50s and 60s and 70s. Oh, and yeah. There are, uh, th yeah. those are the times when they didn't have three-dimensional analysis, when they didn't have deformation analysis. They were using three-dimensional limit equilibrium, and there are examples of very good, very competent back analysis of landslides. Yeah. And what makes them competent is that the investigators were very aware of the limitations of of their tools mm. yeah 
we don't have perfect tools, so you know, we have to be aware of what our tool can show and what it cannot show. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Elena, I I know you're uh, busy, and we're recording this on a Sunday, which is supposed to be your day off. Uh, I don't have really, videos off. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you spending some time with us and and at least making me a little bit smarter today. Well, I, I wouldn't presume. I think you're smart enough. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons I have this podcast is to make myself a little bit smarter. And, you know, it it, it is an interesting way to get educated. Yes, I, uh, well, I obviously like my topic and I like yeah. the work. But... Yeah. Oh, well, you know, we should mention that this paper is going to be in the Canadian Geotechnical Journal but it's also going to be available for non-members for no charge. Is that right? That's correct. We're publishing it as a open access paper. There is, yeah. in fact, a uh, permanent DOI link, which you probably can provide some more in, in, in the comments. Yeah. I'll send it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, and Elena, did you have anything else you wanted to chat about before we part ways today? No, yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's been a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. Yeah, thank you so much. And hopefully we can run into each other one of these days and chat I about so whatever too. your next favorite topic is. I imagine that you do attend the conferences, so I'm sure we'll run into yeah. each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And conferences are starting to go back live now. So hopefully, hopefully... Uh, we find a good one to meet at. All right. Thanks again, Elena, and, and uh, uh, all the best to you. Same to you, Brian. All right. Thank you. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking.